Let us bow now for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, would you bless us now as we come to give consideration to your word. May we see it as your word. May we receive it as such. Give us eyes to see the truths contained within it. Give us hearts that are eager and willing to obey all that you command. Transform us now into the likeness of Christ through the transformation of our minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go now to Ephesians chapter 1, and we will read verses 15 through 23. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, saying, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Brothers and sisters, you have probably noticed how easy it is for we humans to be very blessed, and yet to be oblivious to our blessedness. We are very blessed to live within this country, for example, and yet many seem oblivious to this fact. Some will complain and complain about all that is wrong and rarely, if ever, pause to count the blessings. How many of us wake up each day relatively healthy and yet think little of our health? We will perhaps complain about every ache and pain, but when we are well, we do not stop to consider our wellness and to give thanks to God. And children may grow up in wonderful homes and wonderful families, and yet not realize it. Husbands and wives might have it really very good in their marriage relationship, and yet fail to truly appreciate the other. And on and on I could go, but my purpose here is only to draw your attention to this propensity of ours to be very blessed, and to not realize it. And I think this may be especially true for the Christian, as it pertains to their blessedness in Christ Jesus. In Christ we are very rich, and yet many think of themselves as poor, In Christ, we have every reason to hope, and yet many are given over to despair. In Christ, we have every reason to rejoice, and yet so often we fix our eyes upon all that is lacking in our lives, and we complain instead. Now, in saying this, I do not mean to come across as insensitive here. I do understand that life can sometimes be very hard. When we are faced with sickness and death, financial hardship, heartbreak, and disappointment, it can be very difficult to maintain the perspective that in Christ we are rich, in Christ we have hope, in Christ we have every reason to rejoice. A spiritual struggle is very real, friends, especially when facing trials of various kinds. We should remember that Christ himself was given to despair according to his human nature. Read the Psalms and see how very honest they are. In the Psalms are expressed the whole range of human emotion, including frustration, disappointment, and despair. 
And we should remember what Paul himself said when writing to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And so the burden was very real for Paul and his companions. It was very intense. But listen to what he wrote next in that same passage. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So hear me, please, acknowledge that life can sometimes be very hard. All will experience at one time or another moments of intense struggle. But how important it is for us to struggle in Christ, to put up a spiritual fight, and to strive to maintain that perspective that we know to be true, that in Christ we are rich, in him we have hope, hope that goes even beyond the grave, and in him we have every reason to rejoice. If we are to maintain this perspective in the face of trials and tribulations, even very severe trials and tribulations, then we must know some things about what Christ has accomplished for us. And I do not mean that we must know these things in a superficial and merely factual way. No, instead we must truly know them and sincerely believe them if we are to stand in the face of difficulty, saying with Paul, but that was to make us rely on not ourselves, but God who raises the dead. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In order to speak in this way, as Paul did when burdened with severe trials, we must truly know these things and truly believe them. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he sought to strengthen their faith by moving them to see how truly rich they were in Christ Jesus. This they would have to see, not with their physical eyes, but with their spiritual eyes, that is, with eyes of faith. If the Ephesians were to persevere in the face of hardship, they would need to know, really and truly know and believe, what it is that they have in Christ. And the same is true for you and me. As we move on now from the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and into the body, we see that Paul goes right to work on this task. His objective is to increase our knowledge of Christ, to enlighten us so that we might know the hope that is ours in him and to move us to perceive the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. In verses 15 and 16, Paul informs the saints in Ephesus that he prays for them continually. When Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, he does not mean that he never stops praying for the Ephesians. Certainly Paul prayed for others, and certainly Paul did other things besides pray. We know that when he was free, he made tents for a living. Paul obviously ceased from praying when he taught and when he wrote. When Paul says that he did not cease to pray, or when he commands us in another place saying pray without ceasing, he does not mean that he never did nor are we to ever stop praying. Instead, he means that his prayer for the Ephesians was regular, and so should our prayers be. 
We are to pray as Paul prayed, often and regularly, as a consistent routine within our lives. Every Christian should daily devote time to prayer. Uh, This is evident in the prayer which Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Give us this day our daily bread. And Christians should also pray to God throughout the day, and in this sense we should pray without ceasing. Paul says that he prayed for the Ephesians unceasingly. He remembered them in his prayers, and he gave thanks to God for them, and how important it is that we give thanks to God in prayer. He has invited us to bring our requests to him, but let us bring those requests with thankfulness in our hearts. To the Colossians, Paul said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Notice that Paul said he prayed for the Ephesians, having heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. That is Ephesians 1.15. Here is one of those statements that have made some question whether this letter was really written by Paul and to the Ephesians. After all, Paul was very familiar with the Ephesians. He spent a couple of years in that city and played a critical role in the founding of that church there. Why then would Paul speak of having heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love towards all the saints, as if he did not know about it firsthand? Well, in fact, I do not think this is really a problem for Pauline authorship nor for an Ephesian audience. Many years had passed from the time that Paul was in Ephesus to the writing of this epistle. No doubt the church had changed since he was there last. No doubt reports were given to Paul regarding the health of this church. And so is it not possible that this is what Paul was referring to, a report regarding the well-being of this very significant church? He heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints, and Paul did pray for them with thanksgiving in his heart. That is the point that we're to notice. Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesus. He prayed for them specifically and by name. He prayed for them with thanksgiving in his heart, and he prayed for them unceasingly. Prayer was considered by Paul to be a vital aspect of his devotion to Christ and of his ministry. He devoted much time to it. And so, brothers and sisters, I do ask you, are you consistent in prayer? Are you thankful in prayer? Do you remember others in prayer as Paul did? In the previous sermon, I made an observation in passing. I said, with all of this predestination talk in verses 3 through 14, with all this election talk, please note that Paul, in the very same passage, makes mention of the proclamation of the gospel and personal faith. And my point there was that the doctrine of predestination or election does not obliterate human responsibility, but complies with it. Is it true that God has predestined some for adoption as sons? Well, absolutely, the scriptures teach it. But it is also true that these will come to be adopted by faith and through the proclamation of the gospel. So here we see most clearly that God accomplishes his purposes through the free choices of his creatures. He has foreordained the means as well as the ends. The end is that so-and-so will believe upon Christ to the saving of their souls. This God has predetermined. And the means is that they will come to believe through the proclamation of the gospel. This, too, God has predetermined. He has predetermined the end and the means. 
If someone is predestined to adoption as a son of God through faith in Christ, then it is also predetermined that someone will proclaim the gospel to them. As Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Something very similar may be said here in regard to prayer. Paul the predestinarian was also Paul a man persistent in prayer. There was clearly no contradiction in his mind between the doctrine of predestination that he himself preached and the practice of prayer. He prayed without ceasing for the saints in Ephesus. This he did, though he also taught that those whom God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. That is Romans eight twenty nine through 30 This high doctrine of predestination did not hinder Paul's prayer. Instead, it propelled it. For Paul knew that God has determined to work through the prayers of his people. He understood from his own study of the scriptures, that God accomplishes his foreordained purposes through the free choices of his creatures. He has predetermined the ends and the means. And so, friends, do you wish to see God move amongst us? Do you wish to see the salvation of souls? Do you wish to see those in Christ grow in Christ? Then I think we had better learn to pray, for this is how God works through the prayers of his people. And what did Paul pray for? In verse 17, we read that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We will pause here to make a few observations. One, notice that though this is not a prayer, it is a report from Paul concerning the things for which he prayed. And I do love those portions of scripture where the prayers of the faithful are revealed to us. Prayers are very instructive and insightful. If you wish to know what people truly believe, I've heard it said, do not read their confessions of faith. Listen instead to their prayers. Prayers or reports concerning the content of prayers are very revealing. They reveal what we believe to be true concerning God and our relation to him. Our prayers reveal what we believe to be truly important. Our prayerlessness or our prayerfulness is also very revealing. Our prayers reveal a lot about our faith. Two, notice the Trinitarian shape of Paul's prayer. He prayed to the God, the Father of glory, who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and requested that he would give unto us the spirit of wisdom. Whenever we pray, we are to come to the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Three, notice the central request that Paul made. In essence, he prayed that the Ephesians would grow in their understanding of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for them. He prayed that the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul's prayer was that the Holy Spirit would enable the Christians in Ephesus to truly know and understand the mystery of Christ that was partially hidden in ages past, but had, with the arrival of the Christ, been revealed with clarity. He prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. 
And all of this corresponds to what Paul will say as he brings this doctrinal section to a conclusion in chapter 3, verse 14, saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, a reference there also to prayer, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul begins and ends the doctrinal portion of his epistle with prayer, or at least report of that for which he prayed. His prayer was that we would have wisdom concerning the mystery of Christ, that we would see the mystery that has now been revealed clearly and with knowledge, that we would be enlightened in the heart, that we would come to comprehend the depth of God's love for us in Jesus the Christ. Now, I do not doubt that Paul prayed for other things too. I would imagine that Paul interceded on behalf of the Ephesians for some practical things. Perhaps he prayed that the Lord would provide for their physical needs, that they would have favor with the governing authorities and live at peace, and that God would protect them from harm. But pay special attention to what Paul reported concerning his prayers for them. He prayed for their growth in Christ, that they would grow in their knowledge of him, that they would come to understand the treasure that was theirs through faith in him. And I think this is telling Paul's prayers were spiritual and heavenly. They pertain to the minds and hearts of the Ephesians. They pertain to things eternal. And I wonder if the same is true for us. Now, please don't take this as a criticism of prayers for earthly things. We are indeed instructed by our Lord to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But please notice that this is the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. The first has to do with the glory of God. The second has to do with the advancement of his kingdom, and the third pertains to obedience to his revealed will. And so let us continue to pray for the provision of work, of food, of clothing. Let us continue to pray for physical things, for physical healing, and for freedom and protection from all evil. But here I am saying that we should learn to pray more faithfully and fervently for the salvation of souls and for growth in Christ Jesus, both for our growth and for the growth of others. Paul did not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians, remembering them in his prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. The remainder of the passage is more specific concerning what Paul prayed that the Ephesians would come to know. First, he prayed that they would be enlightened concerning the hope that was theirs in Christ Jesus. We see this in verse 18b with the words, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Uh, This was the thing for which Paul prayed. He was concerned that the Ephesians would truly see, that they would comprehend in the heart and soul the hope that is theirs in Christ Jesus. And hope is a very powerful thing, friends. Without hope, the heart grows weary. Those who lose hope will not persevere. And as you know, people place their hope in many earthly and temporal things. They hope in their health. They hope in their family. They hope in their wealth. They hope in their nation. 
One Greek lexicon defines hope in this way, to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. Now, there is nothing wrong with having hope in earthly things. There is nothing wrong with looking forward with confidence to earthly things that are good and beneficial. I look forward to many things in this life, and so do you. Looking forward to that which is good and beneficial keeps you going to some degree. You go to work in hopes that you will be able to provide good and beneficial things for yourself and for your family and also to care for those who are needy. You labor to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the hopes that they will grow to have faith in Christ and to live for the glory of his name. You invest into your marriage in hopes that it will last and thrive to the glory of God on into old age. Hope keeps us going. But consider this, friends. Now that we have fallen into sin, every person must deal with this thing called death. What then? When death comes, what good will all of these earthly things in which you have set your hope be to you? Truth be told, earthly and temporal things can only provide hope in this life. They benefit us not at all for the life to come. And truth be told, these earthly and temporal things may not even serve us well in this life. Our health will sometimes deteriorate. Our wealth may fly away. Our friends might abandon us. Our country might fail us. Death might even touch those whom we love, those in whom we delight. What then? What will become of you if these earthly things, these temporal things in which you hope, elude you? Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would come to know what is the hope to which God had called them. And this is my prayer for you. I pray that you would come to comprehend the marvelous, unshakable, and everlasting hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. In him we have a hope that death cannot shake. In him we have a hope that will never diminish or fade. In him we have a hope that will move us to persevere with joy, even if every good and pleasant thing in this world is stripped away from us. For in and through Christ we look forward with confidence to the very best and beneficial thing, life eternal, the new heavens and earth, and uninterrupted and blissful communion with the God who made us. As Peter has said, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is in this that we hope, and this hope is ours by virtue of the finished work of Christ, God's beloved Son. Perhaps I could get to the heart of the matter by putting a question to you. Christian, what keeps you going from day to day? What energizes your life? Is it the attainment of wealth? Is it your love for family and friends? Is it the recognition and respect of others? What moves you? What keeps you going? Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that all of these pursuits are sinful or unworthy. I am simply saying that they cannot be ultimate, for they are fleeting and will fail you. They cannot deliver from death. Even in this life, they may fly away. Only hope in the things that Christ has earned for us will last. We should not forget about what life was like for many of the Christians who lived in the days when this letter was written. Pockets of persecution arose throughout the Roman Empire in Asia Minor and in the city of Ephesus. Christians were imprisoned for being Christians. They suffered economic hardships. 
Many were killed for refusing to curse the name of Christ and to offer worship to the Roman emperor. Paul himself was killed in Rome for his faith in Christ. And we should not forget that Christians throughout history and around the world even to this day are pressed with a similar decision, deny Christ and enjoy the things of this world, or remain faithful to him and suffer even to the point of death. If your hope is set ultimately in the things of this world, you will not persevere, friends. You will deny Christ. You will be like those who turn back, whom Paul spoke of in Philippians, saying, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so here we have some insight into how Paul viewed the apostate. He says that these, at least, turned back because their God was their belly. They were more concerned with meeting physical appetites than with honoring Christ. Their minds were, in fact, set on earthly things. And so being driven by fleshly appetites and having their hearts set on earthly things, they turned back from following Christ, but their end was destruction, as Paul said. But in contrast to these, Paul said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul contrasts himself and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus with those who have denied Christ, saying, but for us, our citizenship is in heaven. We wait for our Savior who will return from there and he will transform our body to be like his glorious body. Uh, you, you see here that Paul and all who are faithful in Christ have their hope set ultimately, not in the things of this earth, but in the world to come and on all that is theirs in and through Christ Jesus. And so how crucial it is for us to have our hope set in Christ and in the things that he has earned. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Secondly, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be enlightened concerning the riches of the inheritance that was theirs in Christ Jesus. Again, in verse 18, we read, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Though you may be very poor in this world, in Christ you are rich. In him you have received an inheritance. Your inheritance is the new heavens and new earth, and the new heavens and earth will be glorious. They will be filled with the glory of God. We are to remember that vision that was shown to John of the new heavens and earth as recorded in Revelation 21. I will not read the entire passage, but consider the end of it. Consider the glory of the new creation. John saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, 
For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is your inheritance in Christ Jesus. And it is glorious. In Christ you are rich. Why would you for a moment consider exchanging the glory of this inheritance for the fleeting pleasures of this earth? Christ himself has warned us, saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Paul's prayer, and my prayer for you, is that you would be enlightened to see the riches of his glorious inheritance, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Thirdly and lastly, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be enlightened concerning the greatness of God's power towards them. This is the longest portion of the text. Each portion, you notice, gets longer, leading to this crescendo. Paul remembered the Ephesians in his prayers, praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which he had called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But here he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is a great finale to this portion of Paul's letter, isn't it? Paul wishes to awaken us to the greatness of God's power toward us who believe. He calls this power immeasurable. Though he wants for us to comprehend it, he knows that we cannot really measure it. The power that God has worked in and through the Christ is beyond our comprehension. And what power is Paul referring to exactly? Well, three things are to be noticed. Paul is referring to the power of God worked through Christ to defeat death. His prayer is that we would come to comprehend the power of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so think of this for a moment. Christ defeated death on behalf of those who believe in him. Death is the greatest and most powerful of all our enemies. Death is man's greatest problem. Imagine the greatest of all of our enemies on earth. What is the worst they could do to us? except put us to death. And yet God conquered death in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And when Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised not for himself only, but for all who are united to him by faith. And for this reason, Paul refers to Christ in another place as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is 1 Corinthians 15.20. The meaning is this, Christ was raised from the dead, and all who are united to him by faith will also be raised in him. He was the first of many. 
When Christ conquered death, he conquered it not for himself only, but for those given to him by the Father. And this does move the Christian to rejoice, saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Christ has removed the sting of death, for he has conquered it. And this is real power, friends. There are indeed powerful nations on the earth. There are powerful people who wield powerful weapons, but no one, no man has power over death. Death is greater than all. Even the most powerful of men on earth are bound by it. But there is one exception. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and friend. He died and was placed in the grave, and on the third day God did raise him from the dead. He is risen, and all of God's people say, He is risen indeed. This power is ours if we are in Christ. You and I benefit from it if we believe upon him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Secondly, Paul is referring to the power of God worked through Christ to defeat every rule and authority and power and dominion. Indeed, Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places and is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. To the Ephesians, this meant that Christ has power and authority over the Romans. He has power and authority over the emperor of Rome and those governors who threatened them. Christ had power over the so-called gods of the Greeks and Romans and over every spiritual power in the heavenly places. And this is true comfort to the people of God. It means that we need not fear any man nor any spiritual power. No, as Paul says elsewhere, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so how did our Redeemer come to have such great power? The answer, through his obedient life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. What Savior we have! He came into this world lowly, meek and mild. He was despised and rejected by men, and we esteemed him not, but he was raised in power, all authority in heaven and earth being given to him. And his power is our confidence, for he is our king. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 6. Thirdly, Paul is referring to the power of God worked through Christ in the church. Look at verse 22, which says, And he, God, put all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is truly a remarkable statement. This Christ, who has all authority, 
all things being placed under his feet, and the one who fills all in all and is above all, he is head of the church, which is his body. The church has this powerful and supreme Christ as head. And more than this, the church is here called the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, the earthly and visible manifestation of Christ on earth. Truly, we must see with spiritual eyes of faith and not our natural eyes if we are to believe this. The church, the true church, is so very small and weak and humble when considered from a worldly perspective. We are so very small in number. We do not have military nor political might. We are often poor, despised, and rejected by men, and yet Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, is our head. He is the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. He is the one through whom the new heavens and earth will be ushered in, for he has earned them. And in the church, this new creation has begun through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And so I wonder, do you view the church like this? Do you see her, despite all of her weaknesses, flaws, and imperfections, as the inaugurated new creation, the body and bride of Christ, born and sustained only by the power of God, that same power that raised Christ from the dead? Friends, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was that they would know and truly believe these things that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would truly know the hope that is theirs in Christ, the riches and glory of their inheritance, and the power that is theirs in Christ, power over death, over every foe in heaven and on earth, this power being manifest in the church of Christ even now. And so do you know and truly believe these things? Do you think of Christ, his finished work, his reward, and his ongoing activity within his church in this way? Paul's prayer, and my prayer for you, is that you would. We must, friends, if we are to persevere in Christ when the hopes and pleasures of this life fade away. May you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us bow now for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would come to comprehend the greatness of your love towards us. We thank you that you have adopted us as your children, though we were by nature children of wrath. We thank you for Christ, crucified, buried, and risen. Through him, this adoption was made possible. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to live for the glory of your name on this earth. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Set our minds upon heavenly things, upon our inheritance, May we have true and unshakable hope, hope in these things which are lasting, which are eternal. And Father, may that translate into a constant walk, 
a walk that is worthy of this wonderful calling to which we have been called. Glorify your name, O Lord, in and through your people, and advance your kingdom, we pray. We pray that the gospel of the kingdom would go forth from our lips, and that it would go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit to make it effective, so that men and women would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into your glorious kingdom, this inaugurated new creation. Bless your church, O Lord. Strengthen her. Purify her. Give her wisdom to know how to walk in this world for your glory, honor, and praise. Father, we do pray that you would help us to keep your will. Help us to know what it is that you have asked of us, commanded of us in your scriptures, and make us able and willing to keep that which you have commanded. Father, provide for the needs of the saints, I pray. Would you bless our health? Would you provide for our daily needs? Give us, along with these good things, contentment and thankful hearts. Father, we do pray that you would have mercy upon this world. Bless those who govern, Lord. Help them to govern according to wisdom, so that we may live at peace. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the sins that we have committed. Help us to always forgive those who have sinned against us. And would you lead us, Lord, day by day and moment by moment in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Amen.